Thanks for tuning into the Excel Legal Podcast, an interview-based podcast for lawyers devoted to practice excellence and wellness tips. I'm your host, Shelley Appleby-Ostroff, legal talent development consultant, writing coach, and former practicing lawyer, and I'm so happy you're here. In the second episode of our mental health series, I have the honor of speaking with journalist and social worker Eileen Zimmerman about substance use and addiction within the legal profession. Eileen's a former columnist for the New York Times Sunday Business section and a regular contributor to the paper. She published her first book earlier this year, Smacked, a story of white-collar ambition, addiction, and tragedy. The book revolves around Eileen's shocking discovery that her ex-husband, an Ivy League-educated, high-functioning, and successful senior partner at a prestigious law firm, died from a heart infection brought on by his intravenous drug use. Eileen first wrote about the subject in 2017. Her article, entitled The Lawyer, The Addict, was the 55th most read story in the Times that year and sent shockwaves throughout the legal community. Welcome to the Excel Legal Podcast, Eileen. Oh, thanks for having me, Shelley. Thanks so much for being here. First off, I want to thank you for your candid and thought-provoking writings about a super important topic that very few people are willing to discuss. Um, I remember back in 2017 coming across your New York Times article and getting drawn in immediately by the title, The Lawyer, The Addict, A High-Powered Silicon Valley Attorney Dies, His Ex-Wife Investigates, and Finds a Web of Drug Abuse in His Profession. (laughs) Wow. My first thoughts as a lawyer were confusion and disbelief. I said to myself, well, this cannot be true. Drug abuse in the legal profession um, (laughs) just really hit me like with like a thunderbolt and I'm sure others as well. But as I became more engrossed in the article, my thoughts turned to you. And I was thinking about how hard it must have been for you to write the article and share your ex-husband's story publicly. Yeah. And then you did it again this year in your memoir, Smacked, a story of white-collar ambition, addiction, and tragedy. So what inspired you to share your ex-husband's story through your writings? Well, I think after he died, we didn't, I didn't share it for a really long time, for almost two years. Um, I didn't even share it with other people that I knew, just a really small circle of friends and family. And it just felt like something we weren't supposed to talk about. I got that impression from the firm, but also just in general, it seemed like something you would be ashamed of, you would not tell people about. Mm -hmm. Um, But as I, um, as I went on uh, as the executor of Peter's estate and going through probate, which was a really long process, I realized it was like the only story that I could really tell. It was the only thing I could talk about. It had become this enormously overwhelming thing in my life. And also as I put together what happened to him and realized that like his dealers were people living in the suburbs with children. And it just seemed that this web of drug use and abuse was not something that I had thought was confined to like lower socioeconomic people, less well-educated people that were really poor. That was not it at all. There was a whole other group of people using and abusing for a variety of different reasons, especially in the legal profession. Mm. And um, I started to research a little bit just for myself to figure out what was going on. And I realized that there was a story there. Um, And the first inkling I'd had of that was at Peter's house um, when he died, the police came and the medical examiner came. And I have this in the book. 
I said to the medical examiner pretty much that it was impossible that he had died. They thought he died of an overdose at the time um, and he died of a drug-related um, infection to his heart. And I said, you know, that can't be, he's Ivy League educated, he lives in this $2 million house. And she said, we are actually seeing a lot of this now. And I remember thinking, the reporter in me was thinking, okay, that's a story, but I, I can't go there now. And so after about a year, I was able to start digging into that and realized there was a story. And so I decided um, that I would write about it for the Times and they were great about it. And they felt like it was a really important story to do too, because it just felt like something that wasn't being talked about and was a problem. And that, that something was mental health and drinking and drugging in the legal profession and, and all the things about the legal profession that were um, playing into that, that nobody would talk about because they were afraid of losing their jobs or losing leverage or influence or whatever. And, um, and firms were afraid to talk about it because it was a liability. So um, that's a long answer to say that it just felt like the right thing to do. It felt like an important thing to talk about. And I also knew if it had happened to our family that there were other people that were having the same experience and I was right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So brave. Wow. Thank you. So can I take you back to sure. Peter's story? Um, yeah, because I think that's really, like, really important for people to hear. Um, okay. Yeah, I hope it's not too difficult to recount it. No, it's been a while now, and I've, I've had a lot of counseling around it, so I'm good. Thank you, though. <laughs> yeah, so can you tell me a little bit about Peter and sort of life before law? Uh, so before Peter was a lawyer, he had been a graduate student studying chemistry with the goal of being a chemist. He had thought about being a doctor and decided it wasn't for him. He thought about being a teacher. It wasn't for him. Um, so he became a chemist and he worked in a pharmaceutical startup in San Diego and he liked it. But um, I think he was more ambitious than either of us thought when we, when we first met. He was um, working in New York as an employment counselor at a job that he didn't really want. It was right after Cornell. Um, and we were friends for a couple of years and then that kind of turned into dating and um, we stayed together. And he had decided to go back to school to become a chemist, but he was, you know, like a laid back guy. He liked to read. He played in a band for years, even while he was a lawyer on the side. Um, but he decided that there were, there was two routes for him as a person with a master's in chemistry. He could go get his PhD, which could take any, you know, from four to six years, seven years sometimes. Um, and or he could go and become a lawyer and be a patent lawyer, but he didn't want to be at a bench uh, where chemists work breathing in chemicals the rest of his life. He kind of decided that wasn't for him. So he decided to go to law school. It was three years. Um, the money would be much better than he was making as a master's level chemist. And he was interested in it, I think, intellectually. So um, that's what he did. And then law school was a transformative experience for him. The stress was unrelenting. The competition was crazy. Um, he graduated number one in his class, but and he was kind of set on this trajectory to go into big law and eventually be a partner, which is exactly what he did. But he he um, paid a steep price for that, I think, in terms of his mental health and stress and everything, physical health as well. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering, you know, looking back and putting the pieces together, were there any particular sort of contributing factors that you feel might have sort of led to his addiction and um, yeah, just, yeah the well, yes, I do. I mean, I do. I did a lot of research trying to understand. I mean, I think you know, addictions are just a, are kind of a 
the most obvious symptom of underlying problems. Sometimes those problems are mental health related. Often in the legal profession, it's depression and anxiety. Often in, in the world it is. But you know, there, I think there was a lot of unhappiness for Peter. He was not a happy guy. He would say that. I think he had this kind of low level depression that could sometimes get very deep. Um, and he talked about that a lot. You know, he slept a lot. And when he entered the law, you know, it, it just got worse. So I think that was a contributing factor for sure, the mental health stuff. Also chronic stress. There was unrelenting stress for him. He was at very, very good firms. I mean, he'd been at Brobeck, which was a real powerhouse firm, you know, before the crash, uh, the tech crash. And, um, and then he went to Wilson-Sonsini, which is also a very highly regarded firm. And it's very competitive. So, um, and he wanted to be at the top. But so I think the chronic stress also um, contributed to that. Peter was adopted when he was about four months old. And there's a lot of research about adoptive uh, children that are adopted and um, different mental health concerns that arise from that. And, and I think especially for him, he wasn't adopted until he was four months old. And those are really critical months hmm. in um, infant development, child development. And he wasn't really held much. He was in a foster home with a lot of other babies. So he was well cared for but there wasn't a ton of nurturing. And I think that leads to, you know, depression, narcissism, all kinds of things. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think there were contributing factors and I just, I think, you know, he just couldn't figure out what he wanted and what would make him happy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned you did um, a fair bit of research for Smacked, which is evident um, <laughs> from reading the book. Yeah. Uh, and I, just want to know sort of how you went through that process, because I imagine that um, lawyers and other professionals would be quite reticent to talk about the issues that you were delving into. Oh, that's absolutely true. And it, and that's part of the reason why it's a problem is because nobody wants to be seen as the weak one or the vulnerable one. Nobody wants to be the one that's admitting that they have a problem or sort of this vulnerability. And the, idea, the feeling that I got from the attorneys I talked to was that there were, there were your colleagues in the firm, but they were also your competition for business. So if you were to admit to somebody, like, I think I have a problem, maybe they would help you, but maybe they would also, that would be an opportunity for them to capitalize on your vulnerability, your weakness at that time, steal your business or take mm -hmm. advantage of something in a certain way. So th there's a lot of reticence to discuss it. In fact, um, you know, there most firms have employee assistance plans, EAPs, but those are notoriously underutilized anyway. And I mean, it is hard to imagine a partner in a prestigious law firm with an addiction, a drug addiction, calling an anonymous, like an 800 number and saying, hey, I, have, I have a drug. I mean, it was a huge liability. He, you know, he's leading cases and things. So, um, and, and a lot of the attorneys that talked to me were in, uh, were, were either senior associates, some were partners, some were new associates too, where there's a ton of uh, pressure. So the way I talked to them was by going to visit um, kind of high-end rehabs, treatment centers, that see executives and lawyers and finance professionals and technologists, people like that, where you go and you, you pay a lot of money to get treatment, inpatient treatment. And so some people that were going through that treatment or in recovery, having been to those treatment centers would talk to me. Um, I didn't use real names um, or I used first names, but I knew the people's names and I spoke to them myself. Um, and I also posted on toplawschools.com, which is a well-known form, at least in the States, probably, I don't know if in Canada too, for, for law students, but also lawyers, especially younger associates. But there's also a forum for where senior associates and partners will 
uh, post anonymously using a handle so they will be more candid. So I asked for people to talk about their substance use. And I also posted on Hacker News, which is a site that has about 400,000 um, unique visitors a, a, a month. I can't remember, I think, mm -hmm. but it's, it's a very highly trafficked site. It's, it used to be just largely for people in technology, but it's also, you know, there are lawyers, there are finance people, there are scientists on there, doctors. So um, I also asked people there to anonymously talk to me about the substance use that, of theirs and their colleagues and in their workplaces. And so kind of, you know, by networking through uh, treatment centers and addiction psychiatrists and psychologists, and then posting on um, these two big um, forums, I was able to interview quite a few people, lawyers and people in other professions too. Right. Wow. So <laughs> it a, a pretty wide um, group to draw from. Right. And do you see any patterns or like what did your research uncover about substance use and addiction within a legal profession? Well, it was pretty much um, what I'd come to believe it, is that there, there is a lot of depression and anxiety among lawyers. It's higher than much higher than in other professions. And um, it's because the stress is so unrelenting. And I think for associates, especially, the pressure comes from a lack of control over their schedule. So there's very little autonomy, at least in the US and big law. When you're a junior associate, you are at the mercy of the partners and the senior associates that you work for. And so that lack of ability to control your schedule or when you're gonna be pulling an all-nighter or you know, what cases you're gonna get pulled onto and off of creates a lot of anxiety and a lot of depression. Um, and I, I did, I talked to lawyers that also were in, incredibly mistreated in firms. I mean, it seems like a throwback to like the 80s or something, the way some firms operate. There would be partners screaming at them, throwing things at them, slamming doors in their face. And this was day in and day out. And it's probably mm. because those partners were also incredibly stressed out. Um, there were junior partners and senior associates getting called to the carpet by management of their firms for not billing enough hours, not getting enough business. You know, there's a lot of pressure to perform at a really high level because the money is so good. Hmm. And so what I learned was there's this kind of golden handcuffs that you would imagine that it's so unrelenting and there's a lot of depression and anxiety that's untreated. And since it's not treated through physicians or psychiatrists, it's treated on their own by drinking and by taking opioids to, you know, opioids make them make people feel better and less depressed by a lot of cocaine use, a lot of stimulants like Adderall and Ritalin to stay focused and to stay up late enough to get in enough hours in the day to get the work done and bill enough hours that month. So um, I found that people were, you know, quote unquote, self-medicating mm -hmm. for really good reasons. Sometimes there was actual physical pain just from sitting at a desk for 12 hours a day. And there's also a lot of psychic pain and depression and no time to go to a doctor, no time to go to counseling with a psychotherapist. And also no one wanted to admit any weakness. So that was out. Um, and so instead they, they were just medicating themselves or drinking themselves into, you know, into coping. One guy mm -hmm. told me he had developed a system. He did he was using cocaine and a lot of alcohol. And he said he would always buy plastic bottles of vodka so he could drink in the shower in the morning so his wife wouldn't know. Oh, wow. And cocaine would control, you know, hangovers and things. Right. So it becomes this pattern where that's how you function. And he was still functioning at a, at a quote unquote high level. <laughs> Just astounds me. Um, yeah, me too. Yeah. yeah. I, I wonder how much the the lawyer sort of personality or mindset plays into this. You mentioned a few things about 
not wanting to sort of show any quote weakness. Um, right. But were there other things that you uncovered about sort of a lawyer personality that might have sort of might be a contributing factor generally? Yes, I did. I interviewed a guy. I think it's Larry Richard was his name. Um, oh yeah. The, yeah, this consultancy, this consultancy called uh, Lawyer Brain, and he basically studies the personalities of lawyers and, you know, provides a lot of research and data on that. And the personality type of the typical lawyer is very negative, like a very negative mindset, you know, and which serves an attorney well because they're looking for the problems in a situation or the holes in a contract. But there's this very negative mindset and this uh, suspicious nature and um, there there's a lot of research on that kind of negative mindset that shows that it doesn't serve any profession or any anybody well. It's a very unhealthy um, outlook or mental state, except in the legal profession. Hmm. It does serve lawyers well in their profession to be very negative minded and sort of on the lookout for things that are going to go wrong. You know, you're always kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop. That's how you, you know, mm -hmm. according to what I learned. Um, and that it, that is very unhealthy for a person in terms of their mental and physical health, but it does make lawyers very successful. Hmm. And another um, fact that came out in your book was the percentage of lawyers who seem to be addicted to work. Yes. Like, right. <laughs> That's yeah. where I had people say that you, I had some people on Hacker News and on toplawschools.com say, you need to look at work because the addiction starts with work. And it is, I mean, if, if as a lawyer, you don't have much else in your life because you've devoted so much to this career right now, that's where you're getting all your positive reinforcement and all the things that make you want to keep going. And so if you're so, if your profession so defines you that that's where you get all your positive reinforcement and feedback, you're going to be addicted to that, you know, and you're mm -hmm. going to keep going back for more. And, you know, there is a certain, I mean, Peter would feel really good when he like won in a meeting or, you know, one for a client or, you know, when he got a pat on the back for a well-written brief or memo or opinion letter, you know, and I think, at that point, that's where he drew most of his um, ego satisfaction and how he defined himself and how he saw himself. So a lot of attorneys are so, you know, they're so, that's so much a part of who they are that, um, that you just, you want to put more and more time to it because it's the thing that's paying off the best. You know, you're getting the most positive feedback from it and you're also making a lot of money and mm -hmm. you know, being promoted and winning out over colleagues. So yeah, I think that the first addiction is certainly a work addiction. Yeah, and then it just gets reinforced and then, yeah, wow. Yeah. I'm wondering too about the sort of the, the, the culture within the profession or in law firms in general, yeah. um, because I think specifically um, the research was focused on the, the, the law firm experience. Right. Um, would... Did you learn anything about that through your research? Anything that perhaps you hadn't learned through living with Peter while he was going through uh, the early years in the profession? You know, I think um, I learned, I mean, I think the research kind of validated what I had learned anecdotally, like just by being married to a, an attorney at a big law firm, um, that it, it's a very unforgiving environment. And there's, um, there, there is no place and no vocabulary, at least there didn't used to be, I think, um, until the last few years, for people to talk about mental health issues. Like if you were feeling depressed, you kept it to yourself. And I, I don't think there was, there was not a culture of forgiveness and there was, 
no tolerance for it. It was sort of like, you figure it out. If, if how you get through the day and you're successful is that you drink a lot, fine, you know, <laughs> just don't be a problem and get the work done. And mm -hmm. I think it's the same thing for doing cocaine or meth or taking a lot of Adderall, you know, whatever you need to get it done, get the job done. You know, I don't want to hear about it. That's the way it was. And so, um, and that culture has been pretty pervasive, especially in big law. I mean, when you look at what was happening to Peter, I mean, he was so sick and so thin and I am as guilty as anyone at Wilson. I, I made lots of excuses for it too, but he was clearly sick and impaired. And as long as he was getting his stuff done and showing up for conference calls or, you know, whatever he had to do, I think they left it alone. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't their business. I had asked his, um, his immediate boss, who was a, part, a more senior partner at his firm, when Peter died, he had come to the house and I said, why didn't you ask him? Why didn't you sit down with him and say, what's wrong with you? And he said, we don't do that. We do not get into each other's personal lives. That's not our business. And I thought, well, something needs to change then because somebody needed to sit down with him and say, I can see you're struggling and I want you to know, I want to help you. You're not going to lose your job, you know, but I, I think Peter thought he would absolutely lose his job and everything he'd work for if he told right. anybody about his problem. Right. And I mean, it's just so sad because law firms are a partnership and exactly. what does it, that say about right that partnership like sense of community i mean that's back in the day when i was practicing that was a, a big part of it um that it was like an extended family yes and i think you know there's a professor at stanford jeffrey pfeffer who wrote a who wrote dying for a paycheck this book about how corporate america has changed and he, i talked to him for this book and he just said that the world has gotten so much more transactional since back you know in the 90s and the early 2000s that now it's really all about like, did you get the job done? Did you make us some money? Like, it, you know, he, he basically said, you know, they don't care about the people anymore. It isn't a family. You know, I think they're, I do think the legal profession is trying to change. You know, they, they really are much more open now to talking about mental health issues. You know, for in the last couple of summers, I know they've really tried to make it like summer associateships used to be like this booze fest in the summer. You know, they're really <laughs> trying to de-emphasize that and make it less about getting drunk, you know, and, and more mm -hmm. about just team building and stuff. So I do think there are small steps, you know, there are some firms that have the resources have hired counselors um, available offsite that attorneys can go to and um, no one knows about it. You know, like, I think they are, some of them are really trying and they signed this um, lawyer mental health and well-being pledge that came out in 2018. I think there's like 190 firms that have signed on to that, that they, that they they commit to trying to make the, the workplace um, more conducive to positive mental health, less stress, that kind of thing. And so less stress. And I mean, is there any talk about the whole billable hour uh, issue? Oh, right. that's, and that's, you know, <laughs> that is what everybody says is one of the, the most key problems with big law is the billable and every most law firms is the billable hour requirement. So if you're having to bill every six minutes, you know, it was the bane of Peter's existence. I can't tell you how often he complained about having to do his hours and being late with them. And, you know, I think that there are, I did a story for the Times years ago about a, a bunch of attorneys that had gone out on their own, left big law and established practices like boutique practices that did not bill, have billable hours. It was project-based. Mm -hmm. And to a one, everyone I interviewed said, everyone was so much happier. It was a healthier atmosphere. It felt less intense. There was time for family. There was time for other activities. But with billable hours, they're just, it's a, it's a, 
it's such a messed up system. It's so hard on the human beings that have to build the hours. There's talk about it, but I think it's, I, I, I would say I met with, um, I spoke at Stanford this fall before the COVID lockdown. And um, I met with a group of professors and from the law school. And, and we also met with a couple of managing or of senior partners at uh, Silicon Valley law firms. And some of, and a few of them had said they are, they were looking at other ways to build. They did recognize that it was a huge problem in the firm, but you know, I think it's going to be a very difficult thing to change. They're just not sure how to structure it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's been entrenched in the profession for so long. Exactly. Yeah. And it's not a profession that changes too quickly. <laughs> no, I mean, they still use yellow legal pads. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. And I wonder too about uh, technology. Um, you know, and the, the sense from clients that uh, lawyers are available 24-7. Oh, absolutely. In fact, in fact, some lawyers I talked to that had been practicing since the 90s said that was the biggest change is that in 2007, you know, you had the iPhone and, and before that, the BlackBerry. But, you know, I can remember P- Peter taking his BlackBerry into the bathroom. You know, we figured <laughs> he was going to be in there for a little while. <laughs> get some mail done, you know, get some read. And I think... Um, that's been a huge problem in a lot of professions, but especially law, because like this one gentleman told me, you used to go home at night and at least you were off. You had a, you know, maybe you got home at eight and you had to get back up at six, but you had some time where you weren't on the clock and now that is gone. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can be working on a case that involves international partners and you could get up at two in the morning to do a conference call with you know, Asian partners or clients and, and as Peter did, you know, so there's no, um, there's no break. It's unrelenting. So stress that already felt so chronic now feels like it, it's 24 seven. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, law is not alone in, uh, in feeling the pressure from yes. that, I'm sure. Yeah. And I'm just thinking also about um, sort of the, the law school experience. Like how are we setting up our students uh, for the profession? Did you have a chance to delve into that a little bit? I did a lot. There have been um, quite a few studies. I worked with Andy Benjamin at the University of Washington in Seattle, who's done a lot of studies on law student mental health. And um, it's a very competitive, as you know, atmosphere. And it's so cutthroat. I mean, everybody's competing against everyone else to be number one, number two on law review. Um, and, and he's, and lawyers, law students entered the legal, I'm sorry, law students entered law school, um, actually healthier on average than the the average person their age, you know, let's say they're in their mid twenties. Um, but by the time they leave law school, they have far more depression, anxiety, and substance use really, really high levels of it um, because of the experience of law school. That's what he found. And, and there are other researchers that have found it too. And there was also a woman, Elizabeth Mertz, I think is her name. And she's an anthropologist that studied the language in a year of contracts class, I think at law schools, at several law schools. And she found that just the pedagogy of law school, how the law is taught changes the way a law student thinks about a story, you know, their own life story, their client's life story, the way they look at it is a much more pessimistic view, much more analytical. Um, and it really changes their personality and it, and it also contributes to anxiety and depression. So um, I, I, I think there are probably changes that could be made in law, law schools and legal education too that would um, help students graduate a lot more healthier than they are graduating now. Yeah, and also the culture that I remember really focused around, certainly in the first weeks, binge drinking. I mean, that yes. was a huge factor. Um, Still, I, I mean, as far as I know, it's, I don't think it's changed much. I mean, yeah. certainly it's changed because of COVID. There's, you know, there's right. 
But I think you're right. I mean, certainly Peters, and that was, you know, it was 20 years ago, but they all, they drank, they smoked a ton of pot, they did a lot of coke. I mean, they were all doing it. I, I was somewhat naive. I was not, you know, I was friends with all of them, but I didn't party with them. So I didn't think Peter was doing much of that, but I think I was probably very wrong. <laughs> mm. Mm. Yeah. I'm also thinking about um, what you said about the sort of deep analysis in law school or the way we're trained to think is to constantly be comparing and contrasting. That's right. Yeah. I wonder, did your research uncover sort of any, any sort of negative consequences of that shift in thinking? It it, is. Yeah. It, it essentially it did. It's that it's, all contributes to that very negative mindset. And it's the thing is, it starts out as this negative mindset when you're analyzing a case or a client or opposing counsel, but it, it seeps into the rest of your life. So I can, I can say like a lot of lawyers that I spoke to just felt depressed generally. They felt very hopeless. I mean, if you're always looking and seeing problems and you're always in this confrontational and combative um, profession, it's very hard to be positive and upbeat in the rest of your life. I mean, I think some people manage it, but, but a lot of people don't. And I saw it in Peter. I saw it progressively over the years. He became more and more depressed. And he would even say every day is like going to battle. Hmm. You know, and that's, you know, that's really hard. After Absolutely. a while, you just view everything through that negative lens. Absolutely. And it wears on you too. It wears on you. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. In retrospect, um, were you able to identify any signs of um, Peter's problems or um, have you learned about any of the signs of a possible drug addiction? Yeah, well, you know, I think they were all staring me in the face, but I, tr I, I figured that wasn't even a possibility. So, you know, the warning is that um, it, it is a possibility. Mm -hmm. I think with opioid addiction, you would notice that people are tired all the time. Um, certainly if people are leaving their office or closing the door all the time, going to the bathroom a lot, he, he was using needles. But I think um, that's unusual. A lot of lawyers and judges and professionals in other, in other um, white collar professions, they look at needles as kind of crossing a line. So I talked to this guy who was a judge in Illinois who was a heroin addict. Or, he, or really the language is that he was struggling with a heroin addiction because you don't want to define anyone as just someone with an addiction. Um, but he said that um, he thought, as long as I'm not shooting up, I'm not an addict. Hmm. So he would snort, uh, he would snort heroin, but like, it, you know, of course he was addicted. He had a huge problem with it and cocaine, but he figured as long as he wasn't like shooting it up, he was okay. And, and a lot of executives felt that way, that that was a line that they wouldn't cross, but that's just a that's not a real line. Mm -hmm. So I think if someone's really sleepy, if they're nodding off a lot, a certainly a little loss of weight should have been a definite sign. I mean, he lost so much weight, you know, probably 40 pounds since we had split up five years earlier and wow. maybe more. Um, and he looked terribly, terribly sick and thin. Um, he, he also had a lot of scratches on the side of his face. That's a very methamphetamine problem, yellowing teeth. He was losing his hair, very forgetful. Um, one of the people he worked with said that in meetings, he would kind of go off on a tangent. He's one, this one guy told me they were in a big, on a big conference call and Peter started talking about online shopping, you know, and they were like, um, okay, but you know, like, like stuff that didn't make sense for somebody that used to make sense. And if somebody is acting in ways that 
that are not consistent with how they have always acted, something is going on, you know, mm -hmm. not necessarily a substance abuse problem, but something is wrong. And, but I do think you can, you can look for those symptoms, cognitive problems, along with weight loss, along with sleepiness, freak, a lot of absences, a lot of excuses, forgetfulness, all of that, um, you know, all of that, you know, and also if you're seeing uh, the physical signs of things around, you know, for Peter, you know, he had syringes in his work bag. So he certainly had them in his office probably, you know, and band-aids and alcohol swabs. And so for that, that was an obvious thing. You know, I think if somebody's using, for instance, a lot of cocaine, it might not be as obvious. Or if somebody's drinking during the day, you know, you might notice them going to the bathroom a lot, closing the door a lot. Not, not if you smell it, you know, it's a little bit easier with alcohol to recognize it. So mm -hmm. like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm just wondering, I mean, it just seems like this is such a prevalent problem. And I'm trying to think of ways that maybe you've been able to identify or learned about or discovered through your research of how to combat um, substance abuse within the problem, or maybe it's just generally helping lawyers uh, improve their mental health. You know, I think that's it. I mean, I did talk to addiction psychiatrists and psychologists, and a lot of them felt that the, a lot of lawyers have un, <clears throat> unaddressed um, mental health needs, like especially depression and anxiety. But some probably have, you know, uh, more serious disorders like bipolar disorder or none, and other things. Um, and that the first step would be to get counseling, which a lot of lawyers don't want to spend the time doing. I don't think it's a question of financial. I think it's the time is the really valuable resource for an attorney. So, and also, so you want to, oh, and it might be a combination of addressing it with therapy and medication, but through, through a doctor mm -hmm. um, and the kind of medication that's not addictive, but that would help um, alleviate some of that suffering so that they're not trying to do it themselves. So counseling helps. And I think, you know, they had talked about having peer mentoring both in law school and at law firms so that lawyers that are feeling that stress Maybe they have a more experienced um, or a more senior partner or associate that becomes kind of their mentor and they can have coffee with them every three weeks or something. And just someone where they feel that they can really be honest without having it held against them. Someone who's mm -hmm. not in competition with them. I think that's a great idea. And um, law firms are trying to, are, you know, encourage attorneys to have more balance. I don't know if, you know, if they if their words match their actions or what, what's actually the culture, you know, they're just, it's very notorious that lawyers never take their vacations. So mm -hmm. they'll have three or four weeks amassed and nobody takes them because that's also a sign of, you know, you don't want to be seen as somebody who takes your vacation. Right. Um, but so I think law firm culture really has to change where they're saying to their attorneys, like, you will take your vacation. Everybody takes their vacation here so that you can take it and don't feel that you're judged. I mean, I am not, you know, proud of saying this because I was married to him and he was, he was my friend for half my life, Peter, but, you know, I remember him changing so much. He was a feminist, he would say, when I met him mm -hmm. and he was complaining about the attorneys that took maternity leave and he'd say, well, you know, she's gone for six weeks. And I would <laughs> say, well, she just had a baby, <laughs> you know, and he was like, yeah, yeah, you know, but meanwhile, the rest of us are, you know, and that was not him. Like, I was like, what? what happened to you? Like that you don't mm -hmm. understand that, you know, but because he was under so much pressure, he, even that seemed unfair, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think if, if law firms can slowly change their cultures to make things like taking vacations or not having non-alcoholic events, you know, firm retreats, like if they can make those shifts and send a message to, to attorneys, like we are a team, we're here, mm -hmm. for you. you know, we want to help you succeed. And if you're having a problem, it's okay. You know, that's going to take time. Like you said, Shelly, it's a very, 
old school profession, but um, that I think that would go that would help lawyers enormously. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering about the new generation of lawyers who are speaking out about trying to find, I hate the word balance, but trying to find that, um, um, I don't know what word would replace well, it. It, it, it is, <laughs> it's that sweet spot between where work doesn't, isn't your whole life. You right. Know? I mean, I'm sure, you know, I know there are a lot of lawyers that really love what they do. Um, but, you know, nothing, you can't do anything for 80 hours a week and enjoy it anymore. I think, you know, it's hard to imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think younger, I know that um, when Peter, near the end of his life, he would talk about young, the, like first year associates that would come in and second year. And he would, they would say they were going to leave at six. And he would say like, you're never going to make partner like that. Mm-hmm. And they'd say, I don't want to make partner because I think they saw him and people like him and thought, I don't want that. I don't want to have a bunch of kids I don't ever see and a wife that hates me or, a, or conversely a husband that can't stand me and my kids don't know me and my, you know, I'm not ever around. I make, I miss all the games. I don't make it to family events. I mean, you know, Peter would miss holidays writing briefs for his boss, you know? And um, so I think that, I do think younger attorneys are demanding a different, or, or many of them are demanding something different, but you know, I also think Shelly, I mean, I spoke at um, Berkeley's law school, Bolt Hall, uh, two Septembers ago, and the women in the audience who were one L's, they were a lot of them were asking questions about how am I going to have a family? How am I going to be a partner in a firm? How am I going to pay off my law school debt? I have to work in big law, you know, but I'm already in my late 20s and I also want to have a family. And there were all of these issues still to be figured out for them. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I remember thinking, well, uh, you know, I, I remember answering. Well, you're asking the question, you're raising these issues, and that's what has to start the conversation about them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think what a lot of women are um, turning to for solutions, they're just leaving the profession. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. which is super sad. Yeah. It is, so, and, you know, some are starting their own firms or becoming, you know, like, I mean, it's easier in certain practices than others. If you're trusting estates, it's easier to kind of go in on your own, but I have heard of, or, or leaving for much smaller firms. I did mm-hmm. talk to women, oh, quite a few that had left for smaller firms that, um, that had more empathy and compassion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, this is clearly just the tip of the iceberg. And um, I just thank you so much for sharing your wealth of knowledge about uh, oh, substance use. Thank you for having me. I think oh, that these conversations are really important. And I hope all the attorneys and um, anyone connected to the legal profession that listens, you know, heeds the advice and tries to advocate for themselves. Yeah. And I mean, the fact that you've just been so courageous in discussing uh, Peter's story so openly, I think it's really um, going to open the door for more honest discussions. uh, And yeah, and and a recognition that there's a problem and probably most importantly for everyone to look out for each other. Yes. Yeah. Which which is not something that generally happens, I think, in in big law mm -hmm, firms. Yeah. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So Eileen, again, thank you so much. And just uh, wanting to know what's next for you. Well, um, I just finished graduate school. I'm an old graduate student, but I finished social work. The best kind. (laughs) (laughs) So I just finished that. um, And I'm still writing. I recently had a piece in the Times. I'm writing about, I used to write about business. Now I wrote about trauma and resilience, sort of using my experience, but also interviewing a lot of experts about that. Um, And I'm continuing, I think, to cover this beat, sort of, you know, white collar professions and the problems there. And I'm hoping to practice social work when I get licensed. So I'm just finishing up now. 
um, I think as we see what's going on in the world, there's no shortage of need. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm hoping I can help in some way and contribute. Yeah. Wow. Well, I look forward to following you and um, yeah, reading more of your articles. As, as I say, your writing is so compelling, no matter the subject. So thank you so much. Yeah. That's so kind. Yeah. So uh, yeah. Any last words you want to leave listeners with? Uh, you know, just buy the book. <laughs> you can also get the audiobook or the ebook. It's Smacked, a story of white collar ambition, addiction, and tragedy. Fantastic. Random House in February. So thank you, Shelley, for letting me plug that. <laughs> Absolutely. And I'll put a, um, a link to um, your website, perhaps, or what would yeah, be Yeah, website yeah. is great because there's lots of options to buy the book. You can order Amazon, but there's lots of independent booksellers and other options, too. Okay, terrific. So I'll, I'll put a link uh, to thank that you, in the show notes. That. Yeah. Well, thanks again, Eileen. Oh, and I uh, wish you all the best. Okay, stay well. <laughs> you too. Thanks for joining me today on the Excel Legal Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and that you'll tune in next week for the final episode of our mental health series. I'll be speaking with lawyer and mental health advocate, Michael Herman, about his personal experience with depression and recovery. I'm always looking for topic and guest ideas. So if you have any suggestions for future episodes, I'd love to hear from you at xllegal.com. That's E-X-E-L-L-E-G- a-L.com.